0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to be in the book of Luke. Um, We are preaching through the gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's obviously ones available. We have all the verses up on the screen, so you're not going to feel left out at all. Um, One of the things, um, we've been preaching through the gospel of Luke, and so the gospel uh, of Luke is Luke, who was uh, kind of a, a writer, doctor, friend of Jesus, writing a book about Jesus' life. And so we're in chapter 14. So big numbers are the chapter numbers, little numbers are the verses. Um, those are all going to be on the screen behind me. One quick note before we start reading through this if you um, have any questions or you're trying to think through things or frankly object to anything that I say, we have q and A Q&A number. You can text those in. Those come up to my phone. You can obviously answer question, ask questions the old-fashioned way, raise your hand. But that's available to you if you're just trying to process the passage or want me to speak on something that I didn't talk to. So, Luke chapter 14. Um, I'm going to read uh, verses 12 to 24. We'll talk about the first um, few verses as we get to them. It's a long section, so we'll get to it. So this is Jesus. Um, if you're familiar with the movie Inception, right, where there's a dream within a dream type thing, we have a meal within a meal. So Jesus is at a dinner party, and he tells a story about a party. And Jesus said to the man who had invited him to the dinner party, When you give a dinner to, or a banquet, do, not invite your, do you not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. When you have given a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined a table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will feast, I'm sorry, who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, "Come, uh, come! For everything is now ready." But they all alike began to make excuses. For one said to him, "I bought a field; I must go see it. Please give me, ex- ex- please have me excused." And the other said, "I have bought uh, five yoke of oxen; I have to go examine them. Please give me an excuse. Please have me excused." And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then his ma- then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what, we, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who are invited will taste of my banquet. Father, as we consider your word this morning and see this invitation to your feast, would we hear Jesus' invitation to be here? Would we respond and experience more of who you are for us and be able to share your grace with others. So Jesus, name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with this term, third space. Is anybody familiar with that kind of framing of things? So third space is uh, its basically the business model of how Starbucks um, created who they are, Starbucks today. The idea is you had your home space where you live, you had your second space where you work, and then there's a third space of where you kind of hang out and go talk to people and all that sort of stuff. And so Starbucks kind of built their entire model off of, we want to be a third space. People can come and do their coffee before or after work, hang out with their friends, all that sort of thing. It's beyond, obviously, Starbucks. Certainly, you know, pubs and board game places and all those types of, they've kind of created a place where you can kind of come and hang out and relax. There's not like to go to a restaurant. Like, that's not a third space because they want you in, eat your food, get out. Like, that's kind of the design of, of a restaurant. A third space is a place where you can kind of rest and be refreshed and, you know, connect with people. In the ancient world, um, there wasn't much of a concept of a third space, but the idea of where you connected with people was much more based in your home. You connected with people in your home, and that's still the case around the world today, right? Third space idea is kind of much more of a Western American idea. The idea of you go someplace to hang out, connect refresh, grow, maybe business network, connect with other people, Um, that really happened in people's homes. And so what would happen in those contexts is that they would develop um, kind of their preferred list of people that they would invite and bring near and like they'd connect, work together, their social status improved, all those types of things. That's the background for what we're seeing here in this passage in front of us this morning. Jesus was invited to a dinner party. Now, you can imagine Jesus being invited to a dinner party. He would certainly bring social status to whoever invited him. If Jesus showed up to my Thanksgiving dinner, I think you guys would all know about it. And I would definitely be selfing that thing on Facebook. Like there would be pictures of me with Jesus at Thanksgiving. Like he came to my Thanksgiving dinner, not yours. Even, you know, that idea. So when Jesus is in that environment, what is he going to do? Jesus steps into this space in this story, and he begins to try to unravel their conceptions of community, begins to unravel their their perceptions of identity, and invites them into a radically new way of living with each other and knowing who God is. So the main point of what we're going to be looking at, again, if you have questions, please text them in. The main point is just a simple idea. Jesus invites us in his community of persistent grace. That's really what these three kind of stories are that we're going to look at. Jesus invites us in his community of persistent grace. And I think we'll kind of see as these stories develop. Jesus keeps kind of getting into these conversations with people, and he keeps insisting, no, no. The way in which we come into God's presence, the way in which we relate to each other, the way in which we relate to people outside of our communities, the church, or whatever, is only and always through a self-giving love, a mercy towards other people, a sense of compassion for who they are. That's what Jesus means when he invites us in to his community of grace. So we're going to pick up here in verse 1 to 6. We didn't read these before. I'll read these now. Verse 1 to 6, we're going to kind of see under this, got Jesus' invitation to freedom. One Sabbath, so here we are again, just so you pick up on this Sabbath, would have been a Saturday for them. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So again, these are the guys that have continued to kind of have tensions with Jesus. They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had droops. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remind, remained silent. Then he looked, took him and healed him and sent him away. And don't you love that Jesus just does like this medical miracle and just kind of like, all right, off of you. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, if you've read, if you been kind of following along or you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, you will notice that this is not the first time that Jesus has done a healing on the Sabbath. Again, to kind of fill in some of the backstory story here, it was basically taboo or against their regulations, the Pharisees, for any anybody to do anything outside of basically show up to church stay home, eat meals, don't do anything. And the only things that they allow people to do are like emergency step in. You know, like somebody breaks a leg, you got to help them out. Like that sort of stuff. This man's condition was not an emergency and yet Jesus persists in healing him. But this is not the first time. So we're seeing a sense of repetition in the Gospel of Luke of like, okay, he's healed a a crippled guy who uh, couldn't walk, he raises him, walk out. Just a couple chapters before, we see a situation where Jesus goes out of his way to identify a woman. Um, if you recall, she'd been crippled for 18 years. He healed her, raised her, made her straight, walked out of the temple. That really got under their skin. And so you kind of wonder what's the backstory of how this guy is at this dinner party, right? Is he a plant? Why is he there? What I want to pick up here as well is that um, it's not just kind of another routine healing. Droopsy in the ancient world would have been understood to be kind of a condition of the signified gluttony. The idea is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what droopsy is, but droopsy is basically where your body accumulates liquid, um, and so you just store liquid in your body, but then the, the kind of like the torturous part of it is that you feel thirsty all the time, and so you drink more, you have more water in your body, which makes you feel more thirsty, and so you're uh, you're constantly drinking, basically shooting yourself in the foot with a shotgun all the time. It is a terrible condition. But that's why it picked up on this image of gluttony or lust. So can we, I just want to put this quote up here. This is, again, to kind of throw to some of the commentaries. This is David Garland's commentary. In the Greco-Roman world, Droopsy was seen as a consequence of gluttony and thus was often used as a metaphor for greediness. Droopsy was a label for money lovers. In a few chapters. The Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees labeled as money lovers need to be healed of their moral droopsy, their greedy desire for personal wealth and honor. See, the idea here is that this, basic, this guy is basically a stand in metaphor. For beyond just mere physical healing, when Jesus comes to him, he say, he sees somebody who would, who would have been understood kind of like as a physical embodiment of a sin within the community, right? So Jesus comes up to him, he sees him in the, the dinner party, and he goes over and he embraces him, which is always one of those things where you're just like, Jesus can clearly heal by command. What I think we see here is when Jesus pulls together a community, when he draws people to himself, he can see all the moral failings that we come into the door with, and yet he comes out of his way. Nobody is too tainted or too ashamed for him to welcome in. I mean, my wife and I have kind of been, um, I do not watch this show. Does anybody watch The Queen? On Netflix. Do you guys know the show? It's about Queen Elizabeth, the Queen. This is the fifth and final season, as I understand it. And it's about kind of the death of Princess Diana. And it's one of those, um, I'm not sure if you guys remember who she was, but she was a um, very famous kind of celebrity, uh, global celebrity um, in the royal family. She was, she caused a stir in the early late 80s, early 90s when she was visibly seen as a royal family member hugging an AIDS patient, touching them. This was back in the world where nobody understood quite how AIDS was transmitted and they certainly wouldn't have wanted to touch people. In the ancient world, you can imagine. Here is this guy who embodies greed and lust and these sort of craving sins. And Jesus sees through all of that. He says, "My kingdom, my community, my peeps. I I want all of them to be fully restored and free in my community." He goes out of his way to hug this guy effectively, stand him up, send him out. He liberates this guy from the shame that he would have been brought in under. Goes out of him that he would have been brought in under. Goes out of his way to heal him in an. Inconvenient time and wants him to be a part of his people this is this is the invitation of what Jesus is all about. I'm sure each of us in our own ways has our own groups here, whatever that is for you. None of that creates a barrier for Jesus. He is so fascinated by bringing you into your into his freedom. He is so for you being liberated from the things that you feel like can never change. And he does it primarily through restoring your humanity and bringing you into a relationship. But it's interesting, this isn't the only thing that happens at this dinner dinner party. There's many kind of theatrical acts here. So Jesus kind of goes after this whole idea of freedom and drills down a little bit more deeply into what they need to experience, what we're called or invited to experience. So, let's pick up here in verse 7. Jesus' invitation to freedom here in verse 1 to 6, and now we have Jesus' invitation to humility, verses 7 to 11. Now, this is in response to what just happened. Jesus told a parable to those who were invited because he noticed that they had chosen the place of honor, saying to them, when you are invited, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more dis- distinguished than you and in, uh, be invited by him. And he invited you. He who invited you, both will come and say to you, "Give your place to this person." And then you will begin. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And when you are invited, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here we have Jesus basically kind of uh, pointing at this wedding situation, which I think is actually probably one of the few contexts we can still relate to. Effectively, I'm not sure when the last time you've been to a wedding some weddings have kind of like receptions after the wedding where everybody kind of sits down and has dinner. Some weddings just have kind of, you know, hors d'oeuvres and everybody just kind of mingles around. But if you've been to one with a with a, um, a reception afterwards, you know, you can't really control where you get seated. Like, you know, the host, the, the people who set things up, like, they're like, all right, I'm going to put my friends from college all together type thing. And, you know, no big deal. Maybe you like those people. Maybe you don't. Who does? But basically, this is kind of saying, like, imagine if you were at this wedding, and you got sat down with all your friends from middle school, and you're kind of all catching up, but then that one friend comes in. Um, nobody here's name James, to my knowledge. Uh, <laughs> imagine James comes and sits down, and he's kind of like, man, I don't like you guys. Um, he picks up his chair, walks over to the head table with the, at the wedding, where the bride and groom are sitting. He's kind of like, hey, guys, can I, he just kind of shuffles in and sits down, and Hey, can I have my dinner over here? That's basically kind of the awkwardness of the situation, right? That's kind of the, the like, uh, cringe part of what's going on. You're kind of like, bro, like, who do you think you are? This is not your day, you know? Like, this is about them. This is their thing. You're a part of this. What Jesus is kind of looking at is that he's looking at this dinner party that these people were having, which was a context kind of like their third space, like we talked about earlier, which was a space where not only they connected, but it was certainly a part of how they kind of what's the pecking order? Who's really the the, the heavyweights in the community? Who's developing relationships? And not just relationships like, you know, friendship sort of stuff, but who's brokering deals with who? Who's, you know, Imagine a a city meal where kind of the union guys are all kind of sitting together and they're kind of working their unions together They accomplish something. Like that's the idea here. In the midst of this, Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is effectively speaking spiritual. People who have a very high view of themselves And a very low view of others. In my own reading, I've been reading through a book by um, a guy from the 20th century called Thomas Merton. And this is a bit of a longer quote, but I, I thought that it was helpful in kind of drawing out some of this spiritual pride dynamics. Thomas Merton says, and now I'm thinking of the disease, which is spiritual pride. I am thinking of the peculiar unreality that gets in the hearts of saints, right? So this when he says unreality, he just means like a distortion of how you view the world. It gets in the hearts of saints and eats their sanctity away before it is mature. There is something of this worm in the hearts of all religious people. As soon as they have done something which they know to be good in the eyes of God, they tend to take it, take its reality to themselves and make it their own. They tend to destroy their virtues by claiming them for themselves and clothing their own private illusion of themselves with values. That belong to God. Who can escape the secret desire to breathe a different atmosphere from the rest of men? Who can do good things without seeking to taste in them the sweet distinction from the common run of sinners in this world? The sickness of most is most dangerous when it it succeeds in looking like humility. A proud man who thinks he is humble, and uh, thinks he is humble, his case is hopeless. What Merton is getting at here is when we think that we are doing good things for God, and then we think, yeah, I'm doing these things. They're my things. They reflect who I am. They're, they're my characteristics. They're my virtues rather than God's grace and gift in my life. When we begin to tighten our, our hands around those things, whatever they are, in our hearts, that's when we begin to think, I am so unique that I breathe a different air. I breathe a, a different atmosphere. I am higher than you common sinners. I am better. Thomas Merton is just kind of giving words to help us kind of wrestle with this idea of how do we, in our own hearts, each of us feel this, how do we think that we are different? That we're better, that we're better off, more holy than the other people around us. And what Jesus' invitation here is, don't forget how you got in. How do you get into Jesus' kingdom? (laughs) It's because Jesus, who is himself in the place of honor, he comes to us and says, would you come and have dinner with me? It's about who Jesus is. And the qualifications, frankly, are that we are broken people who sin, who don't have our lives together, who don't really offer advantage to Jesus. Like, Jesus inviting me to be in his kingdom, or certainly even more so, calling me to be a pastor. Like, Jesus doesn't win in that equation. (laughs) I am just some dude who still gets mad with his kids, who struggles to kind of keep my life together, to understand the emotional life and all that's going on here. I don't have things in line. And Jesus wants this guy to be a part of his kingdom, which is the same of what he says for us. And the moment we begin to lose sight of that and think, I've got more together than other people. Therefore, it's really about me. That's when we begin to veer off and think, you know what? I think God really does need me on I really do help God out. Jesus invites us to humility because at the end of the day, the offer is, is it enough that God delights in you? That's the invitation of God's presence. He delights in who you are. He has saved you because of Jesus. He has delighted in renewing you in Jesus, not because of things that you deserved or ways that works out both ways. It's a two-way street. It's because of who God is. Is it enough that He delights in you? Because when it becomes not enough, and you get focused on what you're owed deserve. That's when things begin to turn towards Christ. If we are all at King's Cross here sitting at this table, let's just accept Jesus delights in me, and who deserves what recognition, what Satan Would Jesus sort that out? I don't really know because I probably think too highly of myself to begin with. So, as Jesus begins to deal, drill down. Okay, if you if you're called to freedom in His community, and His community is based on absolute grace, nobody really has an upper leg on anybody else, on kind of knowing who God is or being useful for God. There's true freedom in that humility. Like I don't have to worry about who I am, what uh, how other people view me, you know, all those sorts of things. Then. Jesus drills down a little bit further into how we become that type of community for others. So this is ultimately, this is our third point, Jesus' invitation to renewal. We have read this before, so I want to read this kind of in sections here. Jesus' invitation to renewal, I want to read here verse 12 to 15. We'll pause for a minute. Everybody okay? We're good? He said to the man who had invited him, first of all, awkward, right? When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So here, as we said before, Jesus is alluding to all this kind of social standing status type stuff. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, and he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. I want to pause there. I think this is fairly straightforward in terms of what's going on here. This is Jesus kind of calling this guy out in a sense of like, you've done this all for yourself. This isn't for other people. This isn't to help other people. You've got a lot of great food here. All these other people have, these people have food at home. But this this could have been for people who lack. Who don't have. Um, in a certain sense, when Jesus says, uh, the people that you invite are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Back in Luke 4, when Jesus starts his, his ministry, he says, "Who is the, king? the Spirit is upon me to bring good news to the captive, to sight to the blind, restoration to the poor. That's who Jesus starts his ministry by identifying with. And says, This is who the kingdom of God is for. So verse 15. I think it's interesting. So he says, Here's what the kingdom should look like inviting those who do not have, who do not offer much, who have nothing, new way to nowhere to repay. The kingdom of God is like giving a feast for these people. And then somebody in verse 15, who I don't know who it is, but you can imagine the awkwardness of the situation. He mm-hmm. says, Blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. What I just want to ask, like, when you hear this phrase, this is not a rhetorical question, truly. What do you guys, why do you think he says this? Like, why, anybody got any thoughts on why, in the midst of what's going on here, he says, basically, blessed will be the kingdom of God at the end. Any thoughts on that, guys? God take care of everybody so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying to break, kind of cut the awkwardness of it. Anybody else? Yeah, I think that we're kind of a- aiming in the right direction. In a certain sense, mm-hmm. I kind of read this as he's trying to kind of neutralize the awkwardness of what Jesus has said. He's like basically like, okay, well, we can all agree to disagree we'll all be in the kingdom of heaven together. Like, we'll kind of get there. He's trying to sidestep what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus won't allow it, right? Jesus is now going to tell a parable where he gets after what Jesus, I think what Jesus would say is, this is an excuse. Basically, Jesus is saying, you should have invited all these people to this party. And this guy's like, yeah, we'll, we'll all, it'll be great in the kingdom of God because then we'll kind of all be hunky-dory. We'll be on the same team. And Jesus is kind of like, no, this is critical. Like you are actually fundamentally misunderstanding who God is and what his kingdom is like if you don't get this. It's under those contexts that I think the parable now follows, like what happens next. And let me say this real quick before we move into the parable. Parables are not kind of like, they are not supposed to be the sort of like get a decoder ring and understand what's going on, and now you get the lesson and you can move on. The purpose of a parable is so that you meditate in it. So what we're going to talk about here as we look through this is not so that now you've got the lesson and you move on. It's so that you can kind of come back at this and consider, where am I in this story? Who do I relate to? Redress it, you know, just kind of like the way we do Romeo and Juliet. We kind of redress it to kind of be contemporary. Redress it to like, what, what spiritual lesson do I need to learn with Jesus in this parable? So, verse 16. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First, The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So let's pause there. So that the reason I think that Jesus is responding to this guy uh who said, Blessed are those in the kingdom, is because he then goes on to talk about three these excuses. And I think these excuses are just kind of targeted, this guy just trying to kind of say, like, um, this is not allowable. You can't excuse your way out of embodying and living like Jesus, living like the kingdom of God. And it's fascinating, these three these three um excuses they kind of all at face value are just kind of like bro like you the field is going to be okay (laughs) like i know what a field looks like i'm sure you can you can wait a few days to go check out the potholes and go find out where the good soil is and all that stuff or you just bought oxen like dude an oxen is an oxen like and, and it's not like with the getting married it's like dude you got married you can both come, he's a plus one, you you can bring your wife, like no big deal, and more importantly as well, they had heads up, right, so it says they were invited, and then when things were ready, he sent people out, the party's ready to come in, so they've they've been, they've gotten a heads up, they knew ahead of time that the party was going to happen, and then they all, when it's party time, hey, sorry, I can't make it, I think the invitation that they're missing out on here, at least in terms of how I read this. Imagine you've just bought a piece of property. That's really good for you. Don't you want to share that joy with other people? Or imagine if you've just made a, you know, you've gotten a promotion with work, which is basically kind of like the idea of this five oxen, sort of five cents of oxen sort of thing. Or you've had something with your work where it's like better job, improvement. Don't you want to Share that with people, or you just got married, you know don't you want to show off look my trophy husband, my trophy wife, whatever you know i don't you want to celebrate that with other people like I want to show off, I, I I want to and the invitation that Jesus is basically kind of getting at is here there's an invitation to come share that joy with us. <laughs> they go inward, they go isolated they excuse themselves from participating. So here we have verse 21. Let me pick up here. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master at the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, when uh, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highway and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste of the banquet. Do you notice who God targets with his ultimate invitation? God has, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. We've talked about this before, but in the gospel of Luke, these are all the people who are the outside who have no connections. They have no political force to bring. But I think also as well, these are people who suffer. These are people who know that they suffer. These are the suffering people that God delights in, that God brings in for healing and renewal. I think these are, these categories are people that are not just those specifics for crippled, lame, but they are people who embody, who are capture the catch-all of people who suffer in them. People who know that things are not right, whether with their body or with the way society is structured or with people who have done unjust things to them. People who suffer. Some of you know that my uh, one of my sons is named after a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I think he gives some path forward for us in this passage. Bonhoeffer says, We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or don't do and more in the light of what they suffer. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they can do for us or what they have done to us and more in light of what they suffer. See, the kingdom is like an invitation to see people for what they truly are and to respond to people in light of who they truly are. Imagine how our hearts would change towards the community around us, towards people who have intentionally hurt us, who are our enemies, who have done things that have violated us in one way or the other. It doesn't excuse what they've done, but it certainly changes our hearts when we see that they suffer under who they have chosen to be, or what they have had gone on. How does it change our perspective of our neighbors? People in recovery, people who aren't in recovery yet, people who have homes, people who do not have homes yet, people who are politically the craziest people we've ever met, who, the coworker that just seems to always have that terrible attitude, our boss who has screwed us over in one way or the other, Whoever it is, the people that we don't turn to to get things done in life, the people that we don't turn to to help us out in life, what if we just had this small shift in our hearts to see they are sufferers too? Not that it changes what they've done or anything, but it changes our orientation to see that they too are even recipients of the kingdom, that they too can respond to who God is. Them. If that is the furthest extreme, then the people who haven't, they too are invited into the kingdom. Jesus invites us in his community of persistent groups. So I just want to end. I, I I throw this to you for your small group conversations in the next few weeks. How can we continue to grow as a community of persistent groups? These are just completely like my random ideas. people over labels so people whatever your political dynamics are people who are uh whatever their labels are people are valued over whatever category you want to put on them jesus over brands there are certainly better different uh other ways to to be a church Certain theological things you could say or do, ways to participate in the community, ways to do things as a church. There's a lot of preferences within that. We want to orient towards Jesus and community over are those preferences. So, which is to say, the people that we have immediately around us, these are the people that God has called us to love and serve and to be, to learn what it means to have grace for others, not over. Man, you know what, Jacob, that sermon could have, you could do however you think that things could be better. I'm certainly happy to hear feedback. I know that my sermons are not the greatest on the planet. I certainly don't get invited to conferences or anything like that. Whatever your preferences are, it's all I can. In these stories, we've seen how Jesus offers freedom from even those most deeply seated struggles that we have invites us into a freedom of not having to worry about how we can be jockeying for position, and then creates in us a heart that is similar to the Father's, which is what we'll look in in chapter 15, that is for the renewal of all people. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these moments in Jesus' life, I pray that you would shape us to be people that value your work in others that are for grace being experienced and renewing others, and will we experienced the freedom of the humility that we've talked about in this passage. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.